Hey guys, welcome back to Chronic Failure Podcast. This is your host, Brian Bostock. I'm excited. Today is our first of many current events episode. This episode will entail topics that are current within about the last month or so. And I will be putting episodes out like this on the first of every month. So let's not waste any more of your time. The aim of this podcast has always been to highlight some of humanity's greatest failures when it comes to the environment. Although most of the topics that we have covered to date happened in the not-so-distant past, I think it's important every now and then to talk about what's happening on our planet in real time, in near-to-real-time. And this is why once a month I'll be talking to you about some of the current events happening in the world today that affect us. So here we are, rounding out February 2023 with an overview of some of this month's greatest environmental failures. I hope you enjoy this first Current Events episode. As always, thank you for listening. 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased five-fold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are on the threat of toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. Which is the release of dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. So the first topic today is going to be the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. So a catastrophic environmental disaster happened on American soil less than three weeks ago. Here's what we know about it so far. On February 3rd, 2023, a Norfolk Southern freight train carrying hazardous materials derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. The derailment immediately prompted environmental concerns as well as chemical fears from nearby residents. Fortunately, nobody was directly hurt in this accident. So the train had 150 cars, 20 of which contained hazardous materials. And this information was revealed in a manifest published by the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, I should note, around three dozen cars in total were derailed, 11 of which contained these hazardous materials. So the day after the derailment, the EPA reports being on site and actively responding to the derailment. So what this entails is the EPA monitoring the site for volatile organic compounds or VOCs and these included vinyl chloride and butyl acylate. These are substances that were on the train and are reported as being 
harmful to people. So vinyl chloride, when inhaled, can cause respiratory symptoms like shortness of breath, as well as headaches and dizziness. On February 5th, Governor Mike DeWine activated the Ohio National Guard to assist local authorities. An evacuation order was actually issued for people living within a mile of this train crash due to the risk of an explosion. Now, the remainder of the town's population of around 5,000 people that didn't evacuate were ordered to shelter in place. At that time, the EPA community air monitoring reading were not detecting any contaminants of concern. It didn't take long after for the National Transportation Safety Board to arrive on scene and begin collecting evidence, which were videos and photos from the community. The NTSB identifies the point of derailment due to a home security system that captured the moments before the derailment. According to the investigators from the NTSB, the cause of the derailment is, quote, what appears to be a wheel bearing in the final stage of overheat failure moments to the derailment. A preliminary report was actually released by the NTSB on February 24th, which states that the accident was preventable. Now, apparently there's an automated sensor system set up to show temperatures of these wheel bearings to try and catch failing bearings before they completely fail. Apparently, in this case, automated sensors detected three spikes in temperature of the faulty wheel bearing prior to derailment. But by the time whoever was monitoring realized and could relay that to the train, it was too late and the train had derailed. So backstepping a little bit, also on February 5th, aeration pumps began operating in two nearby rivers, Sulphur Run and Leslie Run. Aeration helps treat contamination by injecting oxygen into the water. Once this begins, the water surface is actually sampled and collected by the EPA and Norfolk Southern. Now, it wasn't until February 6th that Norfolk Southern began executing controlled burns of the rail cars containing vinyl chloride in order to prevent an explosion. And this results in a thick plume of black smoke rising up into the air. And I have to tell you, as an air pollution guy, you know, I work in air pollution for the government. I report to the EPA. This is very cringy to me to think that the EPA allowed them to do this. I know you're worried about an explosion, but there has to be another way rather than creating huge plumes of PM10 and PM2.5 particulate matter that is going to be lofted into the air and 
pushed out over very large swaths of land. Who knows where some of that could end up. Even after this, the EPA continues air monitoring, and in conjunction with a special division of the National Guard, as well as other responding organizations, begins charting the best course of action for the reoccupation of the evacuated areas. It wasn't until February 8th, following the extinction of the controlled burner, the evacuations are lifted and residents can begin returning to their homes. So air quality was tested prior to the return of residents and deemed safe. But residents seem to complain of headaches, nausea, and rashes within a half of an hour of returning to their homes. In fact, a local couple and business owners filed a class action lawsuit against Norfolk Southern accusing the rail company of negligence in a few minutes. So on February 10th, Norfolk Southern installed a dam and a water bypass in order to mitigate any further contamination downstream. Now the next day, on February 11th, the EPA issued a general notice of potential liability letter to Norfolk Southern. Now this document states the intention to hold Norfolk Southern accountable for any cleanup cost. As of now, the EPA and municipal agencies have publicly stated that the water was safe to drink and air conditions are acceptable. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources says that the derailment caused the deaths of a minimum of 3,500 fish in, in the days following the disaster. And this is their official stance. They say that there are no signs of harm to other animals. However, several residents claim that their domestic animals were found dead or died due to the inhalation of the toxic fumes, whether that be the burning chemicals or the raw chemicals. So following the derailment, a town meeting was held in the local high school, and the meeting was to be attended by representatives of Norfolk Southern, who actually bailed at the last minute. This accident and the actions of Norfolk Southern have spurred outrage as it has come to light that accident rates at Norfolk Southern have increased in the last four years as company executives have pitched investors on plans to boost profits by cutting costs. Part of this cutting costs actually is shifting to automated sensors as opposed to skilled railway workers. And like I said, it was this automated system that ultimately failed in providing whoever with oversight the knowledge that this bearing was going to fail. It's no doubt the East Palestine train derailment is but the latest in a long legacy of corporate interest and greed taking precedence over the health and security of the common person. 
Here at Chronic Failure, we will continue to monitor this situation, and we expect it to evolve and have more information come out as time goes on. Hopefully, in the future, however far out that is, we can make this topic a full-length episode. Let's go ahead and jump across the Atlantic and talk about the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. On April 6th, 2023, twin earthquakes, one with a magnitude of 7.8, reverberated across south and central Turkey, north and west of Syria. This cluster of earthquakes is the fifth largest of its kind in recorded history. This earthquake was a shallow earthquake and it actually formed from a strike-slip fault on the eastern Anatolian fault. The effects of the earthquake were catastrophic. I mean, human lives were lost on an epic scale. The latest numbers, as of February 26th, put the death toll at 51,000. That's 44,300 in Turkey and 6,700 in Syria. Unfortunately, as many as 13.5 million people were affected by these earthquakes, and 4 million buildings were destroyed. The effects of the disaster were compounded by the fact that so many buildings were destroyed. Many of them were actually new buildings. Because of the destruction of so many new buildings, in Turkey, doubts began to surface in regards to the Turkish construction and contracting industry following seismic codes. According to a BBC investigative piece released on February 9th, modern construction techniques should mean that buildings could withstand earthquakes of the same magnitude as the one that struck Turkey in Syria three days prior. In fact, following the Izmit earthquake of 1999, building codes were put into place to make buildings more resilient to earthquakes. The building codes were actually last updated in 2018 and include requirements for engineering design, construction quality, as well as material quality. Unfortunately, as we can see here, these laws have been poorly enforced. Now, this is somewhat reminiscent of the Fukushima episode that I did previously and the disastrous implications of disregarding the propensity of natural disasters in an area when undertaking construction projects. However, Japan has applied higher standards of construction that contrast with the standards observed in Turkey when it comes to earthquakes. In earthquake-prone Japan, buildings are enforced using techniques of strengthening, dampening, or isolation. In that BBC piece that I mentioned earlier, Professor David Alexander, an expert in emergency planning and management at the University of College London, states, quote, 
The maximum intensity for this earthquake was violent, but not necessarily enough to bring well-constructed buildings down. In most places, the level of shaking was less than the maximum, so we can conclude out of the thousands of buildings that collapsed, almost all of them don't stand up to any reasonably expected earthquake construction codes. Although construction laws have been tightened in Turkey, there exists a way to bypass these regulations. These amnesties, available by the payment of a fee, have been granted up to 75,000 buildings in the earthquake zone. And this is incredibly short-sighted for a country crisscrossed by fault lines and are at high risk. Another article, in fact an investigative article published by The Guardian, states that the controversial amnesties allocated to illegal construction has netted $3 billion in revenue for Turkey. The fact being explored as this story progresses is that many newer buildings collapsed in Turkey due to having no earthquake-resistant design features. Tangentially, we have another example of how corporate and governmental greed is too often obtained at the behest of human life. We will also continue to monitor this story as it unfolds as well. I think this will end up being a great full-length episode in the future. Now, the third current event that we have is Venice Canals drying up. So, when we think of the city of Venice, it wouldn't be unreasonable to think of this image that is part of this cultural zeitgeist. A gondolier using a long oar or stick, propelling his flat-bottom boat forward, meandering through the canals of the Venetian lagoon. Now, we all know this portrait is synonymous with Venice. In the past, the waterways were used as a major means of transportation. And it's still actually used as part of the city's public transport. A small fleet form a ferry system used to carry folks over the Grand Canal. Today, it's mainly used in the tourism industry. But last week, reports were announced stating that Italy was likely to face another summer drought. And this news comes in light of the fact that the Alps, the mountain chain in Europe that forms a large sash near Italy's northern border, have received less than half of their normal annual snowfall. The concern of this was raised by scientists and environmental groups. In the statement made on February 21st, the Legambiente Environmental Group stated that Italy is suffering from a severe lack of water. In fact, Italy's longest river, the Po, is currently carrying 
61% less water than it normally would at this time of the year. Last year, Italy faced its worst drought in 70 years, and a state of emergency was declared in areas surrounding the Po, which account for a third of the country's agricultural production. Now, the news of a projected summer drought comes at the heels of an uncharacteristic winter heat wave. This winter was exceptionally dry and warm for certain parts of Europe. Now, for a city that has long been characterized as fearing floods, this is certainly quite a turn. This drying out means that the iconic gondolas, water taxis, and ambulances may have to be docked as the city reconciles with its dried-up waterways. Luckily, it appears that there is at least a little respite in sight as precipitation is expected to hit the Alps this week. According to the climate expert Massimiliano Pasque from the Italian Research Institute, CNR, 50 days of rain are needed at this point to restore the groundwater levels. The final topic that I am going to talk about today is about Volkswagen facing more recalls due to emissions. On February 20th, environmental NGO Deutsche Unwelflife, or DUH, was awarded a ruling in its favor by Germany Schleswig Administrative Court against automotive giant Volkswagen. The lawsuit revisits the the history of Volkswagen's 2015 emissions scandal, also known as Dieselgate. So Dieselgate refers to a scandal in which car makers manipulated the engines of their vehicles to cheat an emissions test. So in this case, a number of diesel vehicles used the Volkswagen EA189 four-cylinder engine. And these vehicles were found to have temperature-activated emissions cheating devices. Fortunately for Volkswagen, the German Federal Transport Authority approved a software fix in 2016 that would override the cheating devices as a solution. And this was done in order to not have to recall all of those sold vehicles. Now jumping forward to currently, the DUH argued in its lawsuit that since the emission cheating devices were still in the cars, either way, the vehicles could still emit more pollutants than allowed under German regulations. The cars, despite being fixed, were still allowed to emit excessive nitrogen oxide. Fortunately for DUH, the courts agreed, and on February 21st, the approval for the use of the Volkswagen EA 189 
four-cylinder engine in the VW Golf plus TDI was revoked. Jurgen Resch, DUI's managing director, made the following comment in a statement, quote, Today is a very good day for clean air and the health of everyone in Germany. The fraud diesels finally have to be cleaned up. For so many years, the Federal Motor Transport Authority and the responsible Federal Ministry of Transport have put the profit interests of some corporations before the well-being of all citizens and have violated law and order. Now it's good to see this. That's why we put this at the end to kind of end today's episode on a positive note because in the past episodes and even today a lot of them are about governments putting corporations and profits before the citizens so it's nice to see finally the health and well-being of citizens being put before profits now by now you the listeners of this podcast have probably seen patterns emerging in how we deal with history's biggest environmental disasters as a society. Hopefully, more instances like the ones that played out in the Schleswig court will come into play as we come face-to-face with the inevitable ramifications of our short-sightedness. So this has been the first installment of current events for the podcast. My hope is that we can round out every month with a look at some environmental issues that are more current and part of the news cycle. If you have any local news that you think would be worth looking into, please send an email over to me at thechronicfailurepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at thechronicfailurepodcast. Don't forget to rate and subscribe this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and give us a follow and give us a follow on Instagram. Next week's episode will be about the Panguna Mine and the history of resistance in Bougainville, Papua New Guinea. Between 1972 and 1989, Bougainville Copper Limited, a subsidiary of Anglo-Australian mining giant Rio Tinto, mined for copper and gold in the Panguna Mine on the island of Bougainville. Its operation in the area was essentially the catalyst for an environmental disaster and civil war. I hope you'll join me next week in exploring this eventful topic. With that, as always, thank you for listening.